Well, you know, I was thinking, Janet and I have lived here for about 15 years now. Our kids have graduated and long moved away. And, uh, you know, anytime you move to a different place, you suffer a certain amount of culture shock, right? And uh, so, so for me, the thing that took me the longest to get over was the fact that uh, everything in this town is green and gold. You ever notice that? I mean, the street signs, the billboards, the water tower, the bridges, the buildings, everything is green and gold. And so I suffered, I suffered a little uh, culture shock over that because I come from the land of maroon and white. And in fact, maroon's always been my favorite color. Now, I say all that because this first story I'm going to tell you may cause you a little culture shock when I share about another green and gold because this is also the land of the blue and silver. But in the 1960s, Vince Lombardi's Green Bay Packers were the most dominant team of the NFL. He coached that team for nine years, and in, uh, in those nine years, in eight of those nine years, he finished either first or second, five NFL titles in the first two Super Bowls. Nine of his folks are in the Hall of Fame today. And that, from a team that were perennial losers for the previous decade, he took the same guys, turned them into winners. And you know, every year, um, at the beginning of training camp, when you get all the new rookies in, into the locker room, he would share uh, this one play, the Green Bay Power Suite. Now, Tommy Nelson loves to tell the story, and I love this too. Because he says, this is the defining play of the Green Bay Packers. If you're going to beat us, you're going to beat this play. And if we execute this play, we are unstoppable. And they were unstoppable. And so he'd get up on the blackboard as though he were he were. Diagramming it out for the first time. No Bart Starr was in the back and just kind of wagged his head. But you act like you're, you know, you're so excited over this one play. But for, for Vince Lombardi, this, this one play uh, represented the speed, the skill, the power, the teamwork, everything he wanted his team to be. So when old Fuzzy Thurston, the left guard, would pull around and Jim Taylor or maybe later Paul Horning would, would come around with the ball, the running back, if they could execute this play, you couldn't stop them. Um, but, you know, at this point I have to give a big disclaimer because these are the guys I grew up with in Dallas as a kid. Uh, Roger the Dodger and Tom Landry. I believe it was Tom Landry who said the quality of a man's life is in direct proportion to his commitment to excellence. And so this morning um, I'm going to commit a, um, a major speaking faux pas. I'm going to mix my metaphors. They've already showed you, I've already showed you some financial a slide, I'm going to talk sports, and I'm going to, I'm going to talk about a lot of things because typically, um, what I like to share, let me, let me back up and say that what I like to share this morning is the kingdom power suite, the signature play of the church, if you will. Now, typically when we talk about uh, spiritual multiplication, we go straight to 2 Timothy 2, 2, and we quote that one and we say, the things you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, and trust these are faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul, Timothy, faithful men, others also, four generations. This is the classic verse, but I would like to approach this a little differently. I'd like to take a different tack. Because what I'd like to do is convince you that this theme of spiritual multiplication is replete throughout the scriptures. Genesis to Revelation. So I'm going to go somewhere that I'll bet you've uh, not thought of as a spiritual multiplication passage before. The parable of the Minas. Uh, let's, let's look at that. Over there in uh, Matthew, Luke 19, 11 through about uh, 16. We're going to look at this. As they uh, heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because 
He was near to Jerusalem because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. And so the first guy comes before him and says, Lord, your mind has made ten miles. You're familiar with the story. And he says, well done. Um, have authority over ten cities. The second guy comes and says, your, your mind has made five miles. Well done. Have authority over five cities. And then, and then the third guy does what? He says, well, you know what? I was scared. I hid your mind in a handkerchief. And here it is. I'll give it back to you. And what did Jesus say? Look, all you had to do is at least put it in the bank and let it earn basic interest. He wanted to see a return on his investment. But even this guy wasn't faithful. And then to, the, to, those, uh, to those citizens who hated him and who didn't want to uh, have him reign over them as king, he had them slaughtered, executed. Now this is a familiar passage, and typically this passage is, uh, is, is discussed in the context of stewardship. That we need to be a good steward of the resources that the Lord gives us, and that's true. But I'd like to focus on this one uh, statement right here. Engage in business until I come, or do business until I return. Trade. I'm giving you my resources, and I want you to get out there and invest it, and I want to see it multiply, and then I want to uh, I want you to come back and tell me how it went. Now, this is a parable. What is a parable? A parable is a story laid alongside another story. So I'm going to tell you a story about a common truth that everyone can understand in order to illustrate uh, a spiritual truth, right? So he's telling this kind of a story, and in fact, if you think about how this would apply... Uh, he's talking about himself. A nobleman uh, goes into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom. Now, he's already come once. He's gone away to heaven, and he will return. So he's addressing the time between the ascension after the resurrection and the perusia, or the return, the second coming. And in between, in between those times, he draws his servants together. He says, here, I'm giving you my resources. Now go and do business, engage in business until I come back. And then I want, and, and I will, and then I want to see how it went. What happened? And there's there are a variety of responses to that. And uh, we could say that these citizens, probably that uh, did not want him to reign over them, are probably the Jews. Uh, and his servants, though, are his followers, his disciples. Okay. Well, so what's he talking about? What 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 is the currency of the realm? What does this uh, money represent exactly? That he's giving to them. He wants to see it multiply, and he wants it back. Uh, multiplied later when he returns. Hmm, well, let's think about that for a minute. Invest and multiply. What is the currency of the kingdom? It's people, is it not? People are the currency. People are the most important uh, thing in the whole kingdom. So are there other passages that might address uh, the same kind of thing? Well, let's take a look. You know, this may sound a little bit like John 15. Again, I told you I'm going, to mix my, I'm going to mix my metaphors here because that's exactly what scriptures do. To communicate the same principle over and over again, they often will use different metaphors or examples or parables to try to communicate the same truth. All right, so in John 15, Jesus is using the analogy of a vine. And he says, I'm the vine and the branches. If you stay connected to me, you will bear much fruit. And in fact, verse 8 um, 
If you abide in me, this is what this is what will show that you are my disciples, and this is what most glorifies God that you bear fruit. Fruit. Okay. And fruit would be what? Well, it would be the character of the person, but it would also be the offspring, the seeds of new life. Fruit has seeds that are planted that make new vines, right? Okay. You know, this also sounds a little bit like Matthew 19. Now, Jesus is, is reaching uh, some of these disciples. They are fishermen by trade, many of them, ones in Galilee. And uh, while they're fishing, he says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They had been fishers of fish. <laughs> but he's giving them a higher calling and saying, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Or maybe it's like uh, 1 Corinthians 3, over in uh, verses 6 through 9. Let me read that one to you. Paul talking, I planted Apollos water, but God gave the increase, for God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth or the increase. He who plants and he who waters are one. Now he's speaking to evangelism and discipleship there. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. Hey, that sounds like the parable of mine, doesn't it? For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field. So we've got a farming analogy, we've got a vine analogy, we've got a fishing analogy, uh, and here we have a businessman analogy. Are we addressing the same kind of thing? Hmm. Well, let's let's go back a little bit further. Let's go back a little bit further. Because I'd like to convince you that from Genesis to Revelation, the concept of spiritual multiplication shows that multiplication is the most significant ministry in scriptures. All right. What are the first recorded words of God to man, to Adam? After the name, first recorded words. Genesis 1.28. Be fruitful and multiply. Okay. Eight chapters later. Uh, Genesis chapter 9. Got to read it, right? With Noah. Got a little flood incident. What are the first recorded words of God to Noah after he gets off the boat? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Okay, let's go down a little bit farther. Let's talk about the, the father of the Jewish nation, uh, the father of the Christian faith would be Abraham. Right, what did God say to Abraham on multiple occasions? Genesis 17, 2 through 6. I will multiply you exceedingly. I will make you a father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you. Genesis 22, 17 and 18. I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and the sand of the seashore. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Speaking to Jesus, right? Eventually. Okay. Well, what about his son? God have anything to say about to Abraham's son, Isaac? Yeah. Genesis 26, 4. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, and by your descendants all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis 28, 3. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may be a company of peoples. What about his son, Jacob? Genesis 35, 11. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come to you. Genesis 48, 4. Behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous, and I will make you a company of peoples. Okay, well, what about his sons, his descendants, called what? The nation of Israel. 
Exodus 1.7, but the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied. Or Leviticus 26.9, so I will turn toward you and make you fruitful and multiply you. Are you beginning to see the pattern here? Kind of over and over and over again, isn't it? Deuteronomy 1.10, the fulfillment of the nation of Israel, the Lord your God, this is Moses talking to the nation of Israel, the Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are this day like the stars of heaven in number. That's fairly convincing. Well, um, if we were to uh, keep going, we could look at passages on David, passages related to Jesus. Let's just go straight to the church. Let's just look at the famous passage, uh, the Great Commission. Jesus, after, after the resurrection, Jesus gathers all his disciples together. And what does he say? All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. Lo, I'm with you to the end of the age. I'm delegating my authority to you, disciples, these first generation disciples, and disciples make disciples to the end of the age. That's your job at the end of the age. That's your calling. That's your mission. This is the big job, guys. This is the grand vision, the great quest. Everything related to ministry comes down to this and addresses this. And uh, if we were to look at uh, Acts, over in Acts 9.31, what does it say about the church as it's beginning to grow? It says, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Invest and multiply, invest and multiply. The consistent theme throughout all of the scriptures, it seems like. And then finally, if we were to look even at the end of the age, end times, let's just go to Isaiah 60.22. Well, that, that, uh, that chapter, which I quoted part of it in, the, in our prayer this morning, um, addresses the time when Jesus returns to Israel and reigns among his people. And during that time, a little one shall become a thousand, and a small one a strong nation. And I, the Lord, will hasten it in its time. And then finally, in Revelation 7, 9, what does it say? That John saw there, it says that he saw a multitude from every tribe, tongue, and nation standing before the Lord and before his throne. A multitude that could not be counted standing before Jesus and his throne from everywhere in the world. Invest and multiply. It is a theme that is everywhere. It is everywhere. Now, the classic illustration, and you've probably seen this one, is this little uh, comparison of spiritual addition versus spiritual multiplication. And in this, what you've got here on the left column, let's say we're talking about a very gifted evangelist who travels the world and he wins, let's say, an average of 10 guys a day or 10 people a day to Christ on average, or 3,650 people a year that he sees come to faith in Christ. But he doesn't really do anything else with them. He just leads them to Christ and moves on to the next town. Okay? So there's no follow-up. There's no real discipling going on, just basic evangelism. Over on the right, what we have is one ordinary guy like me and you who just goes and reaches one other ordinary guy like me and you. And he not only he may lead him to Christ, or if he's just a spiritual orphan, he's someone that he comes alongside and just helps him grow, helps him take the next steps 
towards uh, maturity in Christ. Now, let's say after a year, there are two of them. <laughs> wow, you pick up steam. And then after another year, we're up to four. You see, once I, once I fully train that guy, then he can do what I'm doing. He can go off and I can go off. And then if that repeats the process, and over time, by investing in a few, then everyone can sort of pass that on and, and invest and multiply themselves. Now, it doesn't look like we're going to get much result, does it, for a long, long time. In fact, this uh, you know, the flashy big result guys over here on the left who's got the big events. Um, but if you look down at about year 17, you'll see that the one guy passes the, uh, the evangelist. And if you keep going down to year 20 and year 25, the numbers start getting kind of crazy, don't they? In fact, I've seen this. You, you've probably seen this before, and I couldn't get it to year 40 and 50. But if I did, it would be in the billions. The billions. <laughs> say, wow. Okay, so why? This is not This is not new. This kind of an illustration has been around a long time. The church has been around for a long time. What, 2,000 years? Why hasn't this happened? Why isn't everybody in the world <laughs> converted at this point? Because all we got to do is one guy reach one guy, and that guy reach another guy, and another guy, and, and before you know it, everybody will come to Christ. And, and, and the world will multiply. Well, that will happen, won't it? But in the meantime, uh, we're living in the middle of a war zone, aren't we? People are shooting at us. This is not happening in an isolated, uh, pristine environment, is it? So, you know, it's one thing to build a house on a nice piece of, of uh, like we did over here, a <laughs> uh, nice piece of ground, flat, didn't have a whole lot of problems with it. It's another thing to try to build that building in a toxic war zone. You know, a little bit like Nehemiah trying to rebuild the wall. People are shooting at him from the outside, and there's all this dissension on the inside. Yeah, that's, that's really what, what this is like. See, guys, there's a war on, and people are shooting at us. And so a lot of things happen. Uh, but let me back up, because what I'd like to do, uh, one more uh, illustration on the <clears throat> spiritual multiplication. You've all heard the name of Howard Hendricks, Dr. Howard Hendricks. He was a longtime uh, professor, seminary professor at Dallas Seminary. just passed away a year or two ago. And uh, was a professor for probably 60 years and wrote a number of books, traveled all over the world, a very, very gifted speaker, did a lot of big event kind of things, like the guy on the left. Um, had, a, had a broad influence all over the world. On the anniversary of his 50th year as a professor in 2000, he started as a professor in 1950, and in 2000 he was interviewed by the alumni magazine and asked, uh, Dr. Hendricks, what would you say is your greatest contribution to God's work in all these years you've been here? And you might think he's going to say, well, you know, I'm just, I've had the privilege of getting to do a lot of different kind of things and been here and there and seen all this kind of stuff happen. Here's what he said. I would say primarily my relationship with students. I've spent these 50 years primarily in discipleship and mentoring, and I think that's where my greatest contribution has been. Really? And what's your favorite passage in Scripture? 2 Timothy 2, 2, because I've always been committed to a ministry of multiplication. I discovered that I can pastor one church, or I can train 20 guys to pastor 20 churches. I can go to one mission field, or I can train 10 to go to 10 mission fields. I can teach in one school, or train five guys to teach in five schools. So based on that, the things you've heard commit to faithful men and women who are going to repeat the process. Now, that's quite a statement from a guy like uh, Howard Hendricks, who has all the gifts to be this guy on the left. And yet he realized the power is in multiplication, not addition. 
Well, um, so as we talk about, why hasn't this already all happened uh, then? What's, uh, what's sort of the holdup here? Probably a lot of things, because um, Tommy Nelson's fond of addressing the, what he calls the killer deeds. You heard this one? Grant uses this one too. The killer deeds. What are the, what are the things that happen to people that get them out of the game or things that happen? Well, first one, distracted. They get distracted. They get going and then they get distracted. You know, the best illustration of that, I would think, is a guy by the name of Demas. Have you heard of him? He used to be a member of Paul's inner team. And you'll see his name in Colossians and Philemon. He's part of the inner traveling team of Paul. But by the end of 2 Timothy, in 2 Timothy 4.10, it says, Demas has deserted me because he loved this present world. He got distracted, got caught up in the things of the world, and took himself out of the game. He got distracted. You know who that guy is? <laughs> Anybody seen him? We're getting close to Independence Day. This is who? George Washington, President, General, and what's his number one title? Father of our country? The father of our country. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny, uh, Bruce Catlin, who's an eminent author and historian, said that the Revolutionary Period produced six genuinely great men during the Revolutionary Period. Uh, they would be the first four presidents. Tell you know them, right? Right? Washington, Adams, Jefferson, uh, Madison, Ben Franklin, and Alexander Hamilton would be the six. Um, and, you know, there are actually a lot of founding fathers. You know, it's kind of become a popular theme again. You see a lot of books and movies on the founding fathers. So what is it that George did that makes him the father of our country? Hmm. Well, let's think for a minute. Let's think about what, what, what did he do that sort of sets him above everybody else? You know the answer to this? Okay, well, is he the guy that early on promoted unity among the colonies and, and independence from Britain? No, that would be uh, John Adams. <clears throat> okay, well, is he the guy that sat down and wrote the Declaration of Independence that uh, we still today consider one of the greatest literary works in world history? Uh, no, that would be Thomas Jefferson. Um, well, did he... Um, well, maybe he's the guy that is considered the father of the U.S. Constitution a few years later, right? Help get that through? No, that would be James Madison. Oh, I know, I know. He invented electricity. No, that was Ben Franklin. <laughs> um, wait, maybe he designed the, the national financial system that we still follow today. No, that would be Alexander Hamilton. Okay, so what did he do that was so great? And, and, you know, beyond that, there's a lot of other guys that we could consider prominent early founding fathers. Can you name some of them? George Mason, Patrick Henry, John Jay, right? Richard Henry Lee, and there are a lot of others. What sets this guy apart from everybody else? Why was this guy unanimously elected as the President of the United States, unanimously, twice, after the war? Because, you know, he really wasn't that great a general. He lost just about every major battle he was ever in. Okay, you got a couple of non-conference wins at Trenton and Princeton against the Prussians. <laughs> and, oh, wait, he won Yorktown. Yeah, he won Yorktown because the French Navy and the French Army were there, too. And he's more involved. But without them, he probably wouldn't have won that one. Every major open field battle against the British, he lost, which, of course, is the largest, most dominant um, armed force in the world at the time. So, so, okay, so what did he do? He, he is, uh, he's not very well educated. He was not a regular army officer in the British Army. That was always something to torque him. <laughs> what did he do? I'll tell you what he did. This guy perseveres more than anybody else in our country. When everyone else 
else is ready to quit. This guy says we are hanging in there to the bitter end. He perseveres. He won't get discouraged and quit. He is not a quitter. He is a winner. And this guy hangs in there and holds the armed forces together. And his early biographer says he is the indispensable man. Without George Washington, there would be no United States of America today. And let me say that he is the only guy, the only conquering revolutionary general, not to name himself dictator after that. He so believed in what they were about. See, Caesar didn't do that. Cromwell didn't do that. Napoleon didn't do that. But George Washington did do that in a very public ceremony. He surrendered his authority, his sword, back to Congress after the war was over. And that is why he is the father of our country. He didn't get discouraged. He didn't quit. Now this guy, Alexander Hamilton. I really like Alexander Hamilton. He's kind of a popular guy now. If you go to Broadway, right? <laughs> his plays and his big time. I read his biography a few years ago. This guy is an extremely gifted man. Uh, grows up in the humblest of, of circumstances in the West Indies. He has a mentor that sends him off to Columbia. Uh, he is a prodigy and a brilliant guy. And in fact, his mentor for the longest is none other than George Washington. He served on his uh, staff during the war. He is the first ever Secretary of the Treasury of the United States. And in that day, that's the second most powerful guy in the country after the president. Because think about it. He runs the economy. He designs the economy. And yet, poor old Alex, um, somewhere along the way, fell into an affair with a younger woman who was distressed and needed help. And then her husband blackmailed him and had him pay off make payments to him, and then someone discovered that and said, you're probably stealing from the public treasury to do that, and there was a big scandal. Now, he wasn't. He was not violating his public trust, but he fully confessed to his affair, and after that, it was never the same. He probably, he very likely would have been the second or third or fourth president of the United States had that not happened. He got essentially disqualified. So distracted, disqualified, Discouraged. These are the things that keep multiplication from reaching the pinnacle because we're in a war and the enemy's fighting within you. This is, though, the master's master plan. Invest and multiply. This is what we're called to. This is what we're all about. And, you know, uh, only 1% of all the Christians in the world are going to be in full-time vocational Christian work, right? The 99% of the rest of us, and by the way, I'm an attorney. I'm an elder in this church, but I'm an attorney. I have not been to seminary. Um, the 99% of the rest of us, are, are, are we allowed to just sit on the sidelines and let the professionals do all the work? No, we get to all be involved in this. We get to be all be in this game because we can all reach a few. We can all invest a few. I, you know, I raised three children from infancy to adulthood. I didn't raise a 1,000 children. I won't claim to be all that gifted, but I raised three, and I bet many of you out here have raised a few kids or are in the process of raising kids. You hope. <laughs> to launch them off. And you know what? If you raise them right, they'll be able to go get married and have kids themselves someday. See, that's how a family multiplies. See, the church is supposed to multiply like that too. Instead, though, what happens often is we become like the 12th man. You know, the 12th man, the tradition of, of uh, A&M football where um, 11 guys play on the field and 90,000 people sit in the stands and cheer and wave. Well, where did that come from? Well, back in about 1922, all the players had been hurt, so they pulled a bat by a baseball player out of the stands and had him suit up because he had to go in. He can yield. And a 12th man was born, right? Because of the readiness to get on the field. But let me ask you this. Do you think there's any chance in today's world that anybody would ever leave the stands and get on the football field and play? I don't think so. 
barrier is very real. And so the only real similarities between fans and players are the songs they sing and the colors they wear. But see, you know, that's what the church has come to look like. That's not who we are. That's not our calling. Everybody gets to get on the field and play this game. We're all called. We can all make a difference if we get the game. Um, you know, it's funny. Uh, well, let, let, me, let me just say this. What, what exactly? So we, so we talk about investing in multiplying, and, and it's the ministry of a few, a few at a time. Well, what exactly are we? Multiply what? What are we investing in them? Let me just give you three really easy uh, uh, groups here. Now, Grant's talked about this a couple of weeks ago, and everybody can kind of categorize this a couple of different ways. But let me just call it the word and prayer, character and relationships, and ministry and disciple making. If you pass these, if you model these things, and if you pass these things on, we're going to see things happen. You're going to see maturing adults coming along. So if you just help a guy learn to spend regular time in the Word and, and pray on a regular basis, and, and I think it's very bad when we go from Genesis to Revelation on some sort of regular basis where you're regularly reading the Word of God and praying. If you just did that with someone else, you'll change their life forever, won't you? You see, that's the, that's, the, that's the principal part of John 15. Abiding in the vine is everything. Everything flows from the abiding. And that's how you abide. <laughs> Spending regular time in the Word and regular time in prayer. And if we help people develop godly character, honestly address areas of sin in their life, and promote the development of fruits of the Spirit, if we help them build good, solid relationships with their wives, with their family, with a few others, right, and with outsiders, character relationships, that's really the second part of the Great Commandment, isn't it? Love God, that's the first one. The second one is love people. <laughs> and then the third one, are we all called to ministry? Yes, we all can serve in some way the body at large, and disciple-making, can I invest in a few in particular? Yes, I can. I can. Um, last, uh, last Labor Day, last Labor Day, I had, a, I had a really interesting experience, one that I had not had before. I, I had the privilege of discipling my own son, who is in the ministry, and uh, I've been discipling guys for probably 30-plus years now. Um, and one of the guys, one of the other guys I've discipled is running a ministry over in, uh, at, at UT in Austin. And uh, Stuart called me up, my son, and said, hey, I've got a friend, a guy I discipled. His name was Mark. Mark had been the head drum major of the Aggie Band a few years ago. Got married, was going off to JAG school on the East Coast, was passing through, needed a place to stay for a couple of nights. They were just going to kind of relax for a few days. I said, sure, I come stay with us. So I got to spend a lot of time with him over that Labor Day weekend last year. I thought, how, how incredibly... Uh, blessed I am to see essentially a spiritual grandson who was influenced by guys that I influenced years ago. And now here he is, and he's got the vision, and he's out there reaching and discipling other guys. I can't tell you how exciting and how fulfilling that was. It was just an unexpected blessing. Uh, Dalton Trotman was the founder of the Navigators, and he, at one time, was on the Wycliffe Mid uh, Mission Board, hired, you know, uh, interviewing candidates to be, to be a missionary. And he said, you know, we'd ask him a lot of questions, but we'd always make sure we'd ask him these two questions. Nobody would ever get out of the room without these two questions. Tell me about your, tell me about your devotional life, your time with the Lord, getting regular time with the Word and time of prayer. And the second one, who's walking with Jesus because of your influence in their life by name? Can you tell me? Are you ministering to people now? You want to go, over, you want to go overseas in a foreign culture with a language you don't speak, and, and, and be engaged in the ministry. Are you doing that now where you live? 
expressions have always have always stuck with me. Well, let me let me close with this. Um, Paul was fond of Paul was fond of using sports analogies and athletics to describe the normal Christian life. He's got a number of verses: First uh, Corinthians nine twenty four, Philippians three fourteen, Second uh, Timothy two five. Uh, Hebrew, oh, he didn't write Hebrews necessarily. He might have. Um, but my favorite is the First Corinthians nine twenty four. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Now he's talking about ministry there and disciple making ministry. That's what he's talking about. I want to run to win uh, in this ministry. I want it to count. I want it to matter. It's important. And so um, if, if we go back and think about football for a minute, uh, football played at the highest level, right, the NFL. And um, so that's the Super Bowl trophy. That's what you're aiming to win, right? There's the prize, the big prize in football that's trying to win. Uh, who's that prize named after? It's right there in the silver. <laughs> Vince Lombardi. Because Vince is considered one of the greatest coaches of all time, isn't he? And he died of cancer, and they honored him by naming the Super Bowl trophy after him. Yeah. Um, let's, let's, do you know anything about Vince Lombardi? Is he a self-made man? Is he a guy that's just a super talented guy that sort of rose up on his own and, and uh, became the great coach that he was and won all those, won the first two Super Bowls or won all those championships? Hardly. Let me tell you a little bit about Vince Lombardi's lineage. You've probably never seen this guy, but this guy is Jim Crowley. Jim Crowley was Vince Lombardi's college coach at Fordham University in New York. In the 1930s, this guy was the third winningest coach in college football. Fordham at that time was a powerhouse. And the picture on the right is when he himself was an All-American football player at Notre Dame. So, uh, Vince Lombardi's own college coach was an All-American from Notre Dame. And you may not have heard his name, but I bet you've seen these guys before. The Four Horsemen of Notre Dame, have you seen that before? In fact, if you still watch Notre Dame football, they'll show pictures of these guys. Um, and Jim Crowley is the second guy from the right. He was one of the Four Horsemen of Notre Dame national champions in 1924. And if you've ever heard this famous sports clip, it says... Polo Grounds, New York, October 18, 1924. Outlined against the blue-gray October sky, the four horsemen rode again. In dramatic lore, they are known as famine, pestilence, destruction, and death. These are only aliases. Their real names are Stoldrier, Miller, Crowley, and Layden. And while the theology of this clip's a little shaky, <laughs> honestly, Jim Crowley is the most dynamic of the four horsemen of Notre Dame, which means his coach was who? None other than... Newt Rockney. And Newt Rockney may be the most dynamic college coach of all time. He's the guy that put Notre Dame on the map. They were nothing but a small little Catholic school before he came. He went to college there, pioneered the forward pass at the quarterback, and then came back as the coach and won a number of national champions, raised up a lot of coaches, and was very involved in mentoring his players. In fact, they came to him regularly with their personal issues, and he kept up with them after they left. In fact, his biographer says that his most invaluable contribution to college football was the development of a whole colony of coaches. He personally coached and launched into coaching 41 major football coaches. Wow, that is something, isn't it? Newt Rockney, infamous Newt Rockney. Well, um, but Lombardi's branch and lineage doesn't end there. There's another branch. You may not know this guy, but his name is Colonel Red Blake. Colonel Blake 
was the head coach of West Point football in the 1940s. And back in that time, West Point was Alabama, okay? And this guy was Nick Saban. Uh, they were the dominant team of the 1940s. He is the winningest coach in the 1940s. Uh, two national championships, two Heisman Trophy winners, and uh, Vince Lombardi was an assistant coach to him for a number of years. In fact, he said, everything I ever learned about organizing a team and preparing it to play, uh, I learned from Colonel Blake. So Colonel Blake mentored Vince Lombardi. Well, who was Colonel Blake's mentor? I bet you heard of this guy. General Douglas MacArthur. Douglas MacArthur. In fact, that's Colonel Blake on the left, and over his desk is General MacArthur's picture. Uh, General MacArthur was the superintendent of West Point when Red Blake was a uh, student there, and they kept up, and he was his lifelong mentor, and they talked regularly, and he quoted his leadership philosophy regularly to his team that he learned from Douglas MacArthur. And, and, and MacArthur's most famous saying is, there is no substitute for victory. There is no substitute for victory. And guess who quoted that to the Green Bay Packers? years later, Vince Lombardi. So, uh, Douglas MacArthur mentors Red Blake. Red Blake mentors Vince Lombardi. Newt Rockney coaches Jim Crowley. Jim Crowley coaches Vince Lombardi. Is there any wonder that this guy turned into the kind of coach he did? And I could give you no better illustration of multiplication and the power of investing and multiplying. Let's pray. Father, it is your desire to uh, delegate to us your authority, your currency, your resources, that we could go and invest these things in the lives of other people and see your kingdom advance by seeing people come to Christ and grow to maturity in Christ and become everything you want them to be. You are worthy. You're worthy of the glory. And, and, and by us being fruitful and multiplying, you are most glorified. So, Lord, I pray that would be true of us, true of our church. Give us a vision, give us a commitment, give us a heart to live this out in a way that is pleasing to you and by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.